Welcome to the Middle Church Podcast, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, intergenerational movement of spirit and justice, powered by revolutionary love with room for everyone. No matter where you are, how you look, or who you love, we pray this podcast will help you on your journey. Here's this week's worship celebration. Good morning, Middle. How are you this morning? Okay. Heard some goods, but it was a really quiet good, so I'm going to let y'all sit in that. I hope you find your good by the end of this. Are there any um, new people here today? Hi. Welcome. Um, We've got some cards. There's a couple here. Um, We will get you a little card to fill out. We'd love to, you know, just stay connected with you. It is name tag Sunday, and I see that you all have, have your name tags on, following the assignment. Thank you so much. It helps um, people get to know each other. Hi, everybody online. Um, virtual name tags, I think that just comes with your ID when you sign into Facebook or YouTube. So, um, But if you want to tell people where you're from and whatnot in the chat, we always love to know. Um, coming up, homecoming is on October 1st this year, October 1st here in this space. So we hope that you will join us. Um, we have a lot of fun stuff planned for you. We were just planning this past week, um, so we're very excited. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much all you know that I need to tell you this week. So we're gonna get right into worship, but before we do, um, we'll take a deep centering breath together. We meet the holy in this space together. We meet community here in this space. So let us worship God. If you'll stand for our opening hymn, you might know this one.
are really involved today. Friends, uh, this is the time where we invite our young and our young at heart to the stage. Typically, I like to sit with you. Today, I will stand, but I'd love to invite you to the blanket. It's time for the message for all ages. So this message for all ages is going to be a little involved, so I need your participation. There's going to be a little bit of call and response, and there's also going to be a little bit of hand gestures, but I'll guide you, okay? So friends, this past week, we had our third Children's Freedom Summer Camp. Yeah. Yes. With 24 young people, our theme this year was Freedom Rising for a Just World. When I say freedom, you say rising. Freedom. Rising. Day one, we talked about mental health and self-love. Can you just wrap yourselves in a hug with me? We learned the importance of loving ourselves and all of our feelings, no matter what they are. Day two, we talked about our community. Can you make a heart with your hands? Or maybe one of these? We learned about our community heroes in the Lower East Side, and our children packed 200 lunches for our neighbors, yes. For our neighbors experiencing food insecurity through Trinity's food program. Day three, we talked about racial and gender justice. Can you put a fist in the air and protest? We learned about the histories of racism and cis-heterosexism and that we can be upstanders and come alongside others and speak out when we see bullying and discrimination. Day four, we talked about our planet. Can you make a circle like you're holding the whole world like in your hands? Exactly. We talked about different ways to reuse materials, to protect animals, and we also learned how to be scientists and have curiosity for the world around us. Our final day, day five, we talked about art as social change. We made our own superheroes, comic books. We did an improv play about saving our local parks. And we created chants as embodied protest. When I say freedom, you say rising. Freedom. And every day we had music and movement and art and time to just be kids. Friends, it was such a beautiful week. And we do this camp because we believe that our children are not just our future, but our now. We believe that we are creating a space where the world we dream of isn't that far away because of the young people that we are raising together. So to close this out and by way of prayer, I would love to leave you with this song by our 2023 campers.
Amen. Was so beautiful. Thanks. I don't know where Elise just ran off to, but thank you. That was gorgeous. I love that song. <laughs> um, so there was another shooting yesterday. I don't know if you all heard about it. I just learned about it this morning. Another senseless, another racially motivated, another shooting. How many shootings have we had this year? 471? It's August. So I um, pulled up a prayer from the uh, National Officers of the United Church of Christ. Um, they wrote one when Uvalde happened and it felt like it might be kind of timely for us today. So I'm going to read that prayer for you, if you'll join me. In the utter and irrepressible grief, we offer these words, giving collective voice to the anguish we all feel. God, hear our prayer. For the families who lost loved ones today or yesterday. For the community that's reeling. For those who feel the new burden of Useless guilt in the aftermath of this, wondering what else they could have done to, present, to prevent it. For the nation so in love with our weapons that we continue to tolerate these mass shootings and the grief they inflict without ever building the collective will needed to address it fully. For the world suffering a massive and collective grief of its own and witnessing acts of cruelty daily, too numerous to fully process. For news cycles who don't report it. Heal our gaping wounds, restore our sense of compassion, quiet the restlessness within us, settle the building righteous anger, quicken the desire for peace, Remove the chasm that sees race and religion and political persuasion as the marks of a person's worth and value. End the cycle of violence that begets more violence. Silence the voices that broker in fear and division and create the hatred we see mounting everywhere between us. Quiet the troubled soul thinking of grabbing the next gun and ending innocent lives. Empower us all to act now, refusing to wait for the next horror show before we change the laws that make guns and their discharge so accessible. Turn anguish into action. 
our rage to restoration, our hatred to love, our grief to hope. Let it never happen again, ever. How much more can we bear, O oh Lord? How much more can we endure? Be our rock of refuge. Be our light of inspiration. Be our beacon of hope. Be the arms of love that hold us until the pain recedes. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Amen. And now if you'll stand with me and pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, uh, whatever language you know, whatever version you know, there's a version um, printed in our bulletin. Ever-loving and holy God, hallowed be your name. Your reign come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debts on Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the reign and the power and the glory forever and ever. Now let us pass the peace together in whatever way um, you are comfortable passing the peace. Peace be with you, Middle Church.
Mayday, mayday. The earth is shaking. Who gonna save the babies? Down at the border, locked in cages. I'm screaming, mayday, mayday. They say they love me, but they hate me. For my skin color. No justice for Eric Garner, but you say I am your brother. What? Government, you lied to me. But the power falls when you catch a song I need. Heaven, please, we're in a state of emergency. I said we need a strong God. I said we need the real God. We need the God with the resurrection power from the grave to take away the hate and heal the human race. I said we need a. We need a. We need a. They made, they made They say the climate's changing. The poor people in the cold. But you keep preaching to their soul. Ha, but we won't leave till everybody's free. And what? Uh huh, uh huh. Until black lives matter. Uh, more than tax dollars matter. Come on, say it. Heal the 
Now hear a word from the book of Genesis, chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in this land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near to me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, all that you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who you love will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that this is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about it and all the honor accorded to me in Egypt. Tell him everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked to him the word of God. Let me say a prayer with me. God in this world that so desperately needs healing, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be not only acceptable in your sight, but a balm for all the places that are cracked and broken. We pray this in your heavenly name. So a number of years ago, somebody who bullied me in high school sent me a message out of the blue and asked if I wanted to get coffee sometime. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> when I got the note, I was a little incredulous. I mean, the last thing that I could remember him saying was calling me a name with words that I would not repeat in a pulpit. Uh, 
But suddenly, here he was, asking if I wanted to get coffee. I didn't respond. Here's the thing. I don't actually know why he was reaching out. Maybe he saw something I wrote and thought I was interesting now. I mean, in full disclosure, I am somewhat cooler than I was in high school. <laughs> but maybe he had totally forgotten the cruel things he had said to me or the time he shoved me while other people laughed. We ran in the same circles, and it's possible he remembered us as just being casually friends. Perhaps he even wanted to apologize. Maybe the years had changed him, and he reflected on the way he treated me and wanted to make amends. I don't know because I never asked. Clearly, however, there is something about this interaction that affected me because when I read this scripture text nearly a decade later, it jumped into my mind. I think part of that is guilt. I've always felt somewhat bad that I didn't reach out and follow up and see what his intention was before ignoring his message. But truthfully, I don't think that's it. If I'm honest, the reason this experience came to mind is because I'm still angry. At him, sure, but more about the way that this country has so thoroughly fetishized forgiveness above accountability that I ever felt guilty about not responding in the first place. Because what I love so much about this Bible passage is the way that it models a very different approach to what it means to atone for harm and who gets to control that process. So in this reading, we catch up with Joseph at the moment he reveals himself to his brothers. A little backstory for those who haven't seen Technicolor Dreamcoat in a minute. Um, jo Joseph is Jacob's favorite child, gifted with the ability to interpret dreams. Jacob tells Joseph to ask him for anything he wants, and he asks for a ketanet pasim, a word that's often translated as a coat of many colors, but whose only other use in the Bible describes a princess dress. As James III describes in his beautiful poem, Josephine, offering a compelling case that Joe is trans or otherwise gender variant. Or, but regardless of whether Joe was trans, non-binary, or just a boy who likes to wear dresses, What's clear is that this deviation from the norm enraged his brothers. They beat him, throw him in a hole, rub blood on that beautiful dress, and sell him into slavery. To condense a very long story, Joseph ends up in Egypt and works his way into being the Pharaoh's most trusted advisor. He has a vision about oncoming years of famine and the pharaoh appoints him to oversee food distribution for the entire kingdom. A few chapters previous to this one, Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt to beg for food, and unbeknownst to them, they end up pleading their case to none other than Joseph, who they do not recognize. Joseph, however, immediately recognizes them and goes into a private room, breaks down, and weeps. He then composes himself and devises a test to see if his brothers have changed. Again, I'm greatly shortening this story so I don't keep you here all morning, but what's important to know is that the crucial part of this test is for them to return with their brother Benjamin. So here is where our story today picks up. The brothers are back, Benjamin in tow, and Joseph has received the sign he prayed for, the confirmation that his brothers are different 
than the boys who once beat him and left him for dead. Finally, he decides to reveal himself. He tells his brothers, it's me, Joseph. And in that telling we read, he weeps so loudly that the rest of the court could hear him. It's a beautiful moment. The brothers are reunited and Joseph throws his arms around Benjamin and weeps. And Benjamin embraces him back, his own eyes filled with tears. I want to pause here to talk about crying for a second. Partly because, yes, I'm more than a little obsessed. <laughs> for those who don't know, I published my first book this spring, Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter, uh, which explores the physiology of why we cry, the social ethics of weeping, and how tears can water the world we deserve. But I promise that's not the only reason I want to talk about Joseph's tears. Truly, I think the key to unlocking what's happening in this story is to consider the relationship between these three crying episodes. When Joseph cries privately after he recognizes his brothers, when he cries publicly in their presence, and when he and Benjamin cry together. Before I wrote my book, I had a neat, convenient narrative. I thought about tears as an end point, the sum total of the emotional experiences that preceded them, a kind of culmination of the spirit. And then I started interviewing people. And through my research, I saw a picture of crying that was messier. And perhaps that's unsurprising. Crying itself is not exactly neat or tidy. But I heard from people, for example, about not crying in a hospital room when they were visiting a dying friend, but breaking down on the drive home afterwards. I noticed how many people described crying in liminal spaces, stairways, elevators, airports. People would often describe crying not in the moment of insight or inspiration, but the kind of ragged, sometimes seemingly senseless tears that cleared the way for that moment. Gradually, my image of tears shifted. I no longer saw crying as a termination or an end point, but a through point, a process that waters transformation. This squares with what scientists have uncovered about the reasons why we cry. Some research suggests that we evolved the capacity for emotional tears as a way to solicit help from loved ones. Other research suggests that tears may even hold an excretory function a way for our brains to release pent-up neurotransmitters associated with stress, detoxifying the body. Still others suggest crying may help us physically move through repressed emotions. Why, we'll sometimes cry at an innocuous painting or a silly movie, not because that piece of art itself is making us weep, but because something in it dredges up something inside of ourselves that we have not processed. Most likely, it's a blend of these functions. But the truth is that when we spill tears, we are physically and truly moving something through our bodies. After we weep, we are not exactly the same people we were before. Tears, water, metamorphosis. So what does this have to do with Joseph? Well, let's go back to that first crying episode. Joseph weeps when he recognizes his brothers because he's gripped by two intense and perhaps contradictory emotions. On the one hand, he desperately longs to be reunited with them. But on the other, he's not sure that they won't hurt him again. 
Crying helps him hold these two truths simultaneously and devise a plan to test whether they had changed enough that it would be safe to re-enter the relationship. The second time that he cries at the beginning of today's reading is in the moment immediately preceding his self-revelation. Note the chronology here. We read that he weeps so loudly that even Pharaoh could hear, and then he says to his brothers, I am Joseph. In this crying episode, he is overwhelmed by this newfound realization. His brothers did change. They are not the same people that beat him and sold him into slavery. Joseph cries, and in those tears he realizes, yes, I want to know them again, even though they hurt me, even though they did something violent and heinous and awful, I still want to call them brother, and I want them to know the person that I have become. So Joseph comes out. He reveals who he is. And that act of courage sparks the third bout of weeping. Embracing his youngest brother, Benjamin, Joseph cries, and Benjamin's tears fall in unison. Again, it's tempting to look at this moment as the conclusion of the story. Joseph and his brothers reconciled, but that's not what's happening. What this weeping waters is a new beginning. Everything isn't fixed. The trauma that Joseph endured still happened. Amends have not been made. And yet, both Joseph and his brothers have been changing. And this embrace opens the door for that deeper healing to take place. It makes a new future possible, one not dictated by the suffering of their past. By holding these three bouts of weeping in tension with one another, we avoid so many of the pitfalls and traps that are typically laid for us in discussions of harm and forgiveness. First of all, Joseph controls every step of this journey. Too often, cultural narratives press forgiveness onto people who have suffered as if it were some kind of moral imperative, and not a volitional act. It's something that those who write about police shootings comment on frequently, how one of the first questions reporters ask families is often, do you forgive the officer who shot your child? This rush to forgiveness is used to paper over the deeper transformational calling to pursue a world where these kinds of shootings do not happen. To paraphrase Diedrich Bonhoeffer's words, it substitutes cheap grace in place of genuine repentance. Obviously, this is a very extreme example, but the pattern repeats frequently. So many of us have been in family systems where the rush to make nice and alleviate tension is prioritized over changing the interpersonal dynamics that are causing conflict in the first place. Or we've worked for employers who, when presented with serious problems, come up with cheap and easy patches to cover up a structural hole, like throwing a pizza party instead of giving people the raises they deserve. In so many different ways, the call to justice is subordinated beneath the desire for a facile peace. Tears disrupt that artifice. They expose the lie by reminding us real harm has been done 
and it will linger until there is genuine repair. In this story, that's the kind of costly transformation that Joseph requires. The brothers don't just get to say, I'm sorry, and find themselves off the hook. They have to travel back to their home from Egypt and return with their brother Benjamin. They are forced to prove by their actions that they are not the same people that committed harm all those years ago. Then, and only then, does Joseph reveal himself and offer a chance to begin a fresh relationship. And Joseph receives the safety to heal while controlling the contours of that healing. Similarly, the fact that the brothers are required to go through this transformational journey before they apologize helps avoid the kind of milquetoast amends that fill our country. In her fabulous new book on repentance and repair, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg points out the error in a culture that puts apology before genuine change. Another human being's suffering is not magically erased because the person who caused it says that they didn't mean to do it, she writes. When people are pushed to apologize before they become the kinds of people who won't commit that sin again, not only do the apologies often sound vacuous and false, they risk reoffending the very same people who were originally harmed. In contrast, when Benjamin hugs Joseph and cries, note the reciprocity in that embrace. Benjamin and his brothers are now genuinely and rightfully distraught at the way that they abused their sibling. They are confessing that harm from a place of earnest contrition. Apology here doesn't serve as a roadblock or an impediment to any further discussion of the hurt, but as a gateway to a different kind of relationship. Tears are the marker of that transformation. The open heart that fully feels the weight of what has been broken and rejoices in the opportunity to become a repairer of that breach. That's why the note from my high school acquaintance hurt me. That's why I'm still thinking about it now. My classmate didn't even just rush to apology. He skipped over the entire repentance process altogether. No confession of what was done. No evidence of having grappled with what inside of him had moved him to such behavior. No offer of amends to show any consideration for how that bullying might have hurt me. Just an invitation to a new relationship, as if the old had never existed. But here's the thing that I love about tears. My own healing is not dependent on his transformation. Whether or not he has done the work to become a different person, I can do the work to make sure that the pain and anguish that I experienced doesn't spill out in the way that I relate to other people. Joseph managed to process his trauma, not to forget it, but to find ways for it to shape and inform the kind of person he became. And that's why when presented with the opportunity for a fresh future, his heart isn't mired in thoughts of vengeance or revenge. No matter how we have suffered, no matter what harm we have endured, each of us has that choice to own our own healing and to place our future firmly within our control. Tears can water that journey. They affirm that what happened to us was real. It's not imagined harm. 
It's not something we simply forgive and forget. And yet, they invite us beyond that hurt to move through it just as sobs course through our bodies, unsettling the old behavioral cycles that get stuck in our hearts and our brains. If trauma is something that splits the personality, crying can help knit us back together. Prophets of a shared future. In breaking down, we can reassemble shards into stained glass radiance. Never forget, Resurrection looks different than what was buried or what was burned. Scars don't just indicate wounds. They mark healing, too. Great deal to think about. Thank you, Ben. That's really, really. Um, but I'm here to deliver the invitation to join the movement. Um, I'm Beth Ellor, um, and I've been a member of Middle since about 1991. And I have spoken previously about how I came to join the church then. But this time, I want to highlight another aspect of membership that has been occurring to me lately. Ah. We've grown significantly from the days when I first attended, and the advent of our online presence has been a big part of that growth. We had already expanded our virtual reach due to the COVID lockdown so that even the tragic loss of our building didn't totally disrupt our activities. But here's what I've been thinking lately, and I hope you'll bear with me. The move away from a centrally located formal place of worship into a decentralized fellowship of followers around the world while it's not a perfect match, this resembles the working of the earliest church recorded in Acts and the various epistles. Meeting in homes and small venues, talking about the way and what it meant to follow Jesus to really understand what he tried to tell us in the world. They became a community and used their resources collectively in outreach to the poor, the sick and the marginalized. They were inclusive, multiracial, and egalitarian. And through public theology, such as sermons, um, the letters they wrote, and the visits between their groups, they encompassed the known world. Oh, now my screen just disappeared. <laughs> okay, now think of us. Whether by design or by a combination of circumstance, the internet, Zoom, Reverend Jackie's public theology, or enabling lay leadership in small groups, we also have the opportunity for a personal sense of belonging. I experience this in the small groups I belong to, especially New Adventures, but also in voter reform and in Bible study, where I think a lot of you um, join us. Um, these include members from all around this country and beyond, and when opportunities arise to meet in person, for example, at the annual conference, I can't describe the excitement of sitting down with folks I've only known in a Zoom square. I know you share that with me, it's so, so great. Our relationship is more than theoretical. We learn about each other, we share perspectives we could never guess at. 
we share joys and sorrows. The success of an LGBTQ plus rally in Deep Red Idaho, I think Lee shared that. The threat of being evacuated due to forest fires in British Columbia, our member Sue Tucker. An unexpected triumph at the polls in Ohio, which Lee shared with us. These relationships are heartfelt and enriching a precious family. We are many, but we're at one accord. And together, knowing we're not alone in our desire for a better world and how to achieve it, creates an extraordinary facsimile of the beloved community. So join us in whatever way calls you. Look at the small groups or create your own. And remember that along with gifts of time and spirit, financial gifts are also needed in the sharing of resources. To become a member, sign up to join a new member group so we can get to know you better. And if possible, go to middlechurch.org, donate, or scan the QR code, which I think is on the screen, with your financial contributions. Thank you. So good to see you, Middle. Thank you. Hello all the way from New Jersey. Rock forever and ever 
shall stand upon this rock of revelation. I'll build a strong and mighty nation, and it shall stand the course of time upon this rock. If in a simple carpenter see the Son of God. If you could choose to lose what others win, if you will give your life away for nothing in return, then you are where my kingdom will begin. these gifts to our use and make them worthy in, in following your needs and your instructions in this world. Amen.
got to hold each other in moments like this and we look into somebody else's eyes and see that their heart is breaking as well and we collectively choose healing not the kind of simplified forgiveness that so often gets lifted up as if it changed things but that deeper process the one that begins inside each of us but then extends an olive branch looking towards the world you have the capacity to be a carrier of that peace. So go out into the world with a heart broken wide open. Find the places the world is breaking and meet it there with love. And go in peace knowing you are held by that same love. Amen. Thanks for listening, friends. To learn more about Middle Church, visit middlechurch.org. You can help grow this movement of love and justice by rating us on Apple or Spotify and by sharing this episode with a friend or two. Send us an email at info at middlechurch.org if you have any questions or comments. We hope you'll come back next week. Bye for now.